And now I will introduce today's event. In a December television interview, President-elect Barack Obama noted that he had been reading a book about Franklin D. Roosevelt's first 100 days in office. A highly appropriate choice, given the intimidating list of problems facing the 44th United States President when he takes his oath of office next Sunday. Not since Roosevelt moved into the White House in the midst of the greatest economic crisis this country has ever, that country has ever faced has a, new, has a U.S. president inherited such a challenging agenda. The labors Mr. Obama faces are Herculean, a failing auto industry and a growing recession, jobless claims spiking to their highest levels in more than a generation, a continuing crisis in the housing market, the disappearance or fundamental alteration of all five major U.S. investment banks, and a national deficit that defies comprehension. Our guest speaker today will focus on the economic challenges facing the new president. He'll also take a look at how the American banks and the system regulating them stand up to our own in Canada. What have Canadian banks done that has so far insulated them from the astonishing meltdown south of the border? Robert Kelly is Chairman and CEO of the Bank of New York Mellon, a worldwide leader in asset management and security servicing. Operating in 34 countries, Mellon has total assets of $196 billion and a capital market capitalization of $43 billion. Prior to joining Mellon, Mr. Kelly served as Chief Financial Officer of Wachovia Corporation, and previous to that, he spent 19 years with Toronto Dominion Bank where he served ultimately as vice chair. He was named one of America's best CFOs by the readers of Institutional Investor Magazine in 2004, 2005, and 2006. So obviously he's been doing something right for a while. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the chairman and CEO of the Bank of New York Mellon Corporation, Mr. Robert Kelly. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and, um, and thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, I wanted to just acknowledge a couple of people here at the head table. Uh, Jerry McCaughey, who has uh, been a great partner for 12 years with CIBC Mellon, and uh, Tom McMillan, who's been running it and built a huge business here in Canada. We have about 1,600 people in Canada, and I promised I would mention them because it would help him with his business plan this year. <laughs> And, and, uh, and I, <clears throat> I can't be at the uh, head table without mentioning Robin Cortals. Uh, I've been in business now for 33 years, and he was by far my best boss I ever had and taught me more things that I ever should have known, really. And <laughs> I, I, do remember, um, I do remember at one point uh, Robin told me that, um, in fact, when you're president of a big Canadian bank, you only have to make one, maybe two hard decisions each year. And I remember thinking about that last fall, because <laughs> I swear I was doing it like once every three days. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Um, but it is great to be back home again. Uh, our daughter was born here. It's great to be back in Toronto and back in Canada. And, and uh, more importantly, it's actually really great to get outside of New York City. It's just so depressing there right now. Um, now, in preparation for today, I spent a little bit of time preparing a comparative economic scorecard of how these two great countries are doing on both sides of the 49th parallel. So I, I'll tell you what I found uh, up front before I get into the other subject matter. So firstly, your unemployment rate is lower than the U.S. Uh, 
your GDP rate is higher, you enjoy budget surpluses, very slight of course, versus huge deficits in the U.S. You have trade surpluses versus trade deficits in the U.S. Your housing prices have done better than the U.S. and your mortgage market actually exists in this country. Your uh, individual savings rates uh, are higher in Canada than in the United States, uh, although Americans are finally starting to save. Um, Canada has a stronger banking system, there's no question. We could talk about that for hours, but uh, perhaps the best way to think about it is in terms of how the stock market thought about it. And last year, uh, the Canadian banks were down 35% in terms of total return. The U.S. banks, on average, were down 51%, and just for the record, we were down 40%, and kind of in the middle. Uh, it's been an incredibly tough year for the U.S. banking system, and uh, I'll come back to that. Um, we also track corporate tax rates in the 34 countries in which we operate in around the world. And uh, the good news is Canada beats the U.S. It's astonishing. It wouldn't have been the case 10 years ago. Um, Canadians' uh, corporate tax rate at the margin is about 33%. In the U.S., it's 40.5%. The bad news is of all of those countries, Canada has the fifth highest tax rate in the world, which is too high for this country. And, um, and disappointingly, even more, is the U.S. now has the highest tax rate, corporate tax rate on the planet of all the countries we measure. And uh, last year, it was uh, second worst, second only to Japan, but uh, we've managed to move into the, uh, to, into the highest snack bracket. And that's not a good thing in a globally competitive world. Um, <clears throat> furthermore, when you move on from the basic economic stuff, I've also noted that Canada seems to have a federal election every year or so, <laughs> and it does not cost a billion dollars every time you have one. So I had to conclude from that that uh, Canada has a stronger and more efficient democracy. And uh, so, uh, and I could go on with other kind of data, but I'm going to end with uh, my favorites. Of course, you have lots of oil and gas. Uh, your kids actually test better in standardized math and science tests, and on average, you live two years longer than Americans. So basically, you should be absolutely giddy about your relative place in the world right now. Um, now, of course, in absolute terms, uh, our economies are weakening, and they're going to continue to do so this year, and you're going to get lots of bad economic news. Um, we, uh, I, I saw a great stat in, uh, in Barron's magazine a week ago. It said that... Uh, on a 10-year basis, uh, our stock market has had its worst 10-year run since the uh, 1820s. That's the 1820s. Uh, I don't know if you recall when the uh, Dow hit 10,000 for the first time, but it was actually March of uh, 1999, which is amazing. That's uh, a couple more months. That'll be 10 years. Uh, GDP could actually be minus 5 to minus 7% in the fourth quarter. We won't know that till the end of January. Unemployment rates at 6.7. I have no idea where it's going to peak. Uh, the worst I saw in looking back at the records, uh, ignoring the Great Depression, uh, which this is not, and nor will it be, uh, it does appear that the, uh, the highest rate of uh, unemployment in the U.S. was in 82, which was almost 11 percent, 10.8 percent. So it's not a stretch to imagine us going easily above 9 percent south of the border. Uh, but 82 was a very, very brutal time if you were working at that point. 
Um, we only lost 25 banks in the United States last year. That's actually uh, almost none. <laughs> it is by Canadian standards. It's huge, of course, but there's 8,300 banks in the U.S. All of the mortgage banks either disappeared or were acquired um, and, uh, or were, became part of the uh, U.S. government. So you think of Fannie and Freddie and Countrywide and, and the others. Uh, it's been amazing. And, of course, we had five investment dealers, and they're either banks or they're part of large organizations are gone now. Uh, so we have some challenges. Um, and as you know, um, the U.S. has just had a very historic uh, election. Uh, when President-elect uh, Obama is inaugurated in eight days, he's going to have some big challenges, and everyone knows it. Everyone's very hopeful. Uh, there is a wonderful attitude in the U.S., a bipartisan attitude of let's get this thing behind us, let's deal with it. Uh, there are some big issues, and I'm going to talk to just three of them, uh, the economy, um, health care, and retirement funding. Uh, I know mostly stuff about the economy, so I'll keep it really short on the last two. Uh, first of all, uh, the economy. Um, in the aftermath of the credit crisis, particularly after the Lehman demise, where that same weekend that Merrill Lynch disappeared and AIG basically had to be bailed out, uh, we walked, as a country, we walked right to the edge of the cliff. There was a complete lockup of the credit system in the United States. It was absolutely astonishing, and the, uh, the U.S. commercial uh, short-term commercial paper market and short-term funding market, which is about a $10 trillion market, and about half of it's government paper, so the rest of it is bank and corporate paper, it was disappearing at the rate of about, we estimate, about $50 billion a day. So uh, companies basically couldn't fund themselves. Um, there was unbelievably massive, historic, and creative things that the Treasury and the Fed and other government officials did in the United States. And um, it, is, it was astonishing how much liquidity was actually injected and, uh, and the impact it's really had. Now, what you're seeing a lot of right now south of the border and probably up here as well is a lot of armchair, second-guessing, hindsight stuff about how well some of these programs worked and didn't work and, you know, did we, were they papered right and did we have the right administration around it. You know, this was done in emergency mode. Not all of those plans and the actions were perfect, but I can tell you it worked. The, the system is much better today than it was in October. Uh, the economy is still bad, but, and the banks aren't lending as much as they would have traditionally, but, of course, standards, lending standards are <clears throat> now back to a more normalized level uh, versus the go-go days of 06 and the first half of 07. Uh, but I would say that TARP and all the other activities that occurred at the time has really, really helped the U.S. financial system. So uh, we're not going to see the full effect of these actions for a while yet. They're still working through. You've seen essentially with the act, with the effect of uh, bringing interest rates to zero. Uh, at some point, that will be inflationary. At, the government is already starting to think about how do you get out of these programs, uh, you can't underestimate the importance of that. The, in the normal course of events, the capital markets in the United States require a banking system that works and it requires a capital market system that works. And when they aren't working, then you have a government system that helps. Well, the capital market system is completely shut down, and that's another discussion we could have. Uh, the banks, of course, are under extraordinary duress, 
and, um, and the government's been helping out massively. At some point, they've got to figure out how to extract ourselves from this system, and we've got to get the capital markets going again. Hopefully, it won't be too far in the future. The biggest problem we faced, of course, and, uh, and we're still facing it today, is the housing market. The housing market, last time I looked, was about an $18 trillion market in the U.S., and uh, mortgage debt against that is about $10 trillion. Half of that is Fannie and Freddie. Uh, there were terrible excesses that happened in the U.S. that did not happen in this country because of the different banking system we have here and the mortgage origination system. One of the uh, <clears throat> a CEO of a bank in Ohio told me about six months ago that 18% uh, of the mortgage brokers in Ohio actually had criminal backgrounds. <laughs> it's astonishing. It's just, it's just so sad. And that's got to change. That has absolutely got to change. The, the Case-Shiller Index um, shows that we're down 23% from the peak. If you, uh, if you look at it city by city, you can look at the 10-city type measure, and you can look at a 20-city measure. Uh, of course, the southeast and the southwest are doing the worst. The, uh, if you look at Miami or Phoenix, the, the housing market is down about 40% so far. Essentially, if you, know, if you go to a Walmart and... Uh, and buy a toaster, you get a free host with it now. <laughs> <clears throat> um, now, what I will say for all of you wonderful snowbirds or potential snowbirds, this is a great opportunity for you all. Um, we've, uh, we've priced um, our mortgage-backed securities, and unfortunately we own some of these things, uh, at assuming a uh, 35 to 40 percent decline from peak to trough. And uh, it's probably going to happen. It's, it's amazing. And I don't know what that implies for those cities in the southeast and the southwest, but it's going to be tough. And I've also seen data that it's indicated if you bought a house for the first time after 02 or even 03, um, you're probably underwater. So there's a lot of things that's got to get done here to turn that problem around. That a, a house is 80 for the average American, it is 85% of their net worth. So if that net worth is flat or going down, you're not going to be spending as much. So uh, we've got to get this problem stabilized. Uh, foreclosures are going up, as you all know. Uh, there was a program in, um, in the U.S. during the 30s, during the Great Depression, where essentially if you had a job and you couldn't afford your mortgage payment, uh, the government provided for 1.9 million households in the United States. It provided an ability for you to renegotiate your loan at a lower interest rate and extend term, it worked. And it didn't cost the government any money at all. Now, there's other ways you can do that through guarantees and stuff like that, but I know that uh, the President-elect Obama is certainly thinking about it a lot, and there's probably things we need to do like that to cushion the further downward trend in housing prices that are occurring here in the U.S. Uh, you probably saw how the... Uh, uh, the Fed is now buying uh, mortgages. That's great. It's really been bringing down mortgage rates in the U.S. A lot of people hope we'll see a mortgage rate in, in the 450 type range. It's in, for a 30-year paper. I think it's around 530 right now. Um, I think that's got to keep happening, particularly for all those mortgages where you have, uh, where you have resets occurring this year. If we have a 4.5% mortgage rate, that'll be good for everyone. Uh, in terms of what you should watch for, uh, there's really two statistics, and it's not rocket science. Uh, inventories are now at the level of about 12 months versus where they should be at four or five or six months. 
we've got to start to see that inventory level starting to come down. And we also eventually have to start to see price declines, the relative uh, speed of price declines to start to table off here and level out. Uh, I don't know when that's going to happen, hopefully in the second half of this year. Um, that is the main issue, and until we solve, until we solve uh, housing, we're not going to be able to turn this around. Uh, another thing you're going to see this year is a huge amount of regulatory reform. Clearly, there were excesses. There's issues in terms of a uh, number of things that perhaps we should be doing better as a country in terms of how we regulate banks, hedge funds, insurance companies, financial systems generally, how we manage systemic risks. Uh, that is going to be a huge topic, and it will be dealt with, I would think, very early in, in uh, this year. Um, last topic would probably be, uh, from the economic standpoint, is the stimulus plans. Uh, the plans last year were big, and they weren't cheap. Uh, we're going to see more of them. I am a big believer in lower tax rates, as you could probably tell. Uh, they have to be not just one-year things or even two-year things. I think the average American has to believe they're actually going to be there for a long time. And um, I hope to see that, and along with other things that are being done, whether it's infrastructure programs or, or uh, other things that we can do to help uh, forestall foreclosures. But it's going to be a tough year. Um, in, terms of the, uh, in terms of the banking system, in 91, 92, um, between, I think it was 1,100 or 1,200 banks disappeared, which is astonishing. The estimates in uh, the U.S. at the moment is a couple hundred banks will disappear. Uh, that's probably true. Uh, I think of it in terms of kind of like three bubbles that are occurring. The bubble you've seen so far is the write-down in securities that are going on in the U.S. market. Uh, eventually, that's going to tail off. I don't know when that is. Is it halfway through this year or is it the end of this year? The next wave of losses that's going to occur is going to be in personal loans, whether they be auto loans or leases or credit cards or other forms of personal stuff, including uh, home loans. And then eventually, at some point later this year, we're going to see more commercial real estate and other fun stuff like this. Uh, so uh, I would think that the banking system will have losses this year that are pretty sizable, and, and the market is certainly expecting a disastrous fourth quarter when people start reporting over the next couple of weeks. And, uh, and those losses will probably go through to next year. Um, the, uh, the thing you should remember, though, when you're seeing all those things is that that is not an indicator of what's going on in the economy. That's a lagging indicator, okay? That's all the junk on people's balance sheets that they've got to write off and get behind them. And we will get it behind us. And it's just it's going to take some time. Uh, the fundamental earnings power of the uh, U.S. financial system is about $220 billion a year pre-tax, pre-write-offs. So if we got another, let's say we've got another half trillion to go of write-offs, who knows? I don't know. Then you've got another couple of years of write-offs. We'll see. Um, I'd be happy to talk about that more in the Q&A. Uh, healthcare. The um, president needs to deal with it. And uh, the problem is, as you've probably seen all these graphs, the costs are absolutely escalating, and it's escalating rapidly. Uh, most studies would indicate that the cost of healthcare is going to triple by 2020. Uh, today in the United States, healthcare is 16% of GDP. In Canada, it's 10% of GDP. So you have a real competitive advantage from that respect, and the U.S. has some cost issues. Um, 
I don't know what is the best health care system, and I get into a lot of trouble whenever I talk about it because everyone has such strong feelings on it. But I've lived in three countries, the U.S. and Canada and the U.K., and the U.K. has something that's kind of in between Canada and the U.S. There's a basic system for everyone, um, and then there is, if you want to invest in it, you can uh, have a top-up plan. And uh, Germany's doing the same thing now, and I think that makes an awful lot of sense. Um, and, of course, the other reality in the U.S. is there's 47 million citizens that are not insured, and I, I think that's, personally, as a Canadian, I think that's a terrible thing. And uh, that is certainly a plank on uh, President uh, Obama's uh, agenda, which he hopes to end, and the question is, how will he make it happen? Uh, and finally, retirement funding. Um, the Social Security system is unsustainable. You probably know that, uh, that Austria was the first country to figure out that people should retire at 65. That was done uh, during the 1860s, and how did they pick 65? It's because basically all men were dead at 65. <laughs> uh, so, so I'm glad we're through that little problem here. Um, so I was reading recently that um, at baby girls born right now probably have a pretty good shot of, being, of living to 100, which is amazing. So um, I, I actually like Canada's idea of the Canadian pension plan, CPP plan, of, uh, of as you call it in the States, it's kind of a hybrid plan. It's pay as you go or full funding. But I love the idea of putting the money aside for, for retirement. And uh, there aren't a lot of countries doing it, and I think it's pretty brilliant, and you should be proud of it up here. Um, I don't know what will happen with the retirement funding program and how it will work, but I'm sure it will involve some rise in retirement age and probably some change in the way benefits uh, work and ultimately reductions. So I'm gonna, before I make you too depressed, I'm going to wrap up on a positive note. Uh, we do have a new administration coming in. Uh, I think that will be good for investor confidence, and people uh, will be thinking differently, and they'll be a little more optimistic. Also, there's been 10 recessions since the Second World War. There's also been 10 recoveries. We always recover. It happens every time. <laughs> and we will this time, too. And uh, it's so easy to be really negative. We will get through this. We always do. Uh, Americans are impatient people. They want this problem behind us. They elected Obama to put this problem behind us. Now, it can't happen overnight, but we will get it behind us. Hopefully, we'll only have a couple of quarters of uh, negative GDP growth, and then we'll start to rebuild from that, and hopefully we'll get housing uh, uh, stabilized. And, uh, and finally, given that um, Canada's GDP is uh, in large measure exported, 35% of the GDP of Canada is exported, mostly to the U.S. I would hope that you'd kind of be uh, rooting for us, so to so the border. I, uh, I, talk, uh, I talk Canada up every time and every opportunity I get. I've had very little uh, success, though, getting A into the vocabulary there. It's, it's been a serious problem. So thank you very much. I'd be happy to answer any questions. Thank you very much, Bob. Now we have two microphones that are wandering the room looking for questioners. 
And uh, we'll, I'll turn over my hosting duties after this point to Noella Milne, uh, past president of the Canadian Club. And uh, questions? Do we have any? Raise your hands, please. And Mr. Kelly will be uh, pleased to answer them. I think you should step up here, and I'll step aside. Thanks, Ellen. Okay, not all at once, and your limit is uh, five per person. <laughs> it's a great turnout. Thank you. Yes, my question is in regard to the health um, improvements that you were talking about in the U.S. Can you share what you think is going to be some of the biggest challenges for the new president in terms of making that dream realistic? So could it be like resourcing of getting enough doctors that take several years to get into the force, or is it going to be uh, infrastructure, or what do you feel is going to be the biggest challenges that he'll need to overcome? I, I, you know, I, I'm certainly not an expert on it. I, I was on a hospital board system in the Carolinas for four years, um, and we did talk about it a lot, and we did do comparative studies between countries to talk about the future of healthcare. Uh, the U.S. healthcare system is absolutely fabulous if you're rich. You know, if you've got money, you have instantaneous access to anything you want and everything you want. And there's, you know, you don't have to wait a year for a hip replacement. You can have it done while you're in, you know, in outpatients five minutes after it's been diagnosed almost. It's amazing. You can actually have CAT scans on, on little mini ones that people buy to put on the corner of their desks. It's absolutely astonishing. Um, I, uh, you know, the, I suspect that part of this, it's an inefficient system, I suspect, because of the fact that it's private. And uh, I can tell you, uh, my wife's here today, and uh, our son had to have an operation six or seven years ago. And, uh, boy, we were exposed to the complexities of the U.S. insurance system. It is astonishing. Uh, it's very tough. And I remember thinking how easy it was to get health care in Canada and how uncomplex. It's very complex south of the border. So um, I, I don't know how it will play out. I really don't. But I suspect in the end uh, part of it is going to be more co-pays. I think part of it is going to have to be that uh, profit margins for uh, providers are going to be lower. And I don't see a way around it. And I think, I suspect that in the end, Americans uh, may have to get, it's going to be painful, but I suspect that um, availability of services uh, are not going to be as instantaneous as they were in the past. It's going to be a very tough debate. Other questions? Uh, Bob, uh has anyone taken a look at uh, the current house prices in relation to replacement cost? I mean, uh, that's got to be a big influence at some point. Mm. You're absolutely right. A, a good friend of uh, mine uh, just bought a place in Delray in Florida. That you know, He has money and he always wanted to own a place in Florida. And he said, in the end, this thing is so much lower price than replacement cost you know, and he's going to live in it for 10 years or use it for 10 years. He's pretty excited about it. So I, I do think you're starting to see some people starting to do that. Uh, but you've got to be careful, though. I think you can get tricked by replacement cost because um, that, that uh, variable can change rather rapidly. So uh, I think it's relevant. Um, what I, what I, I'm mindful of, the thing I, I, I love the most in, this, in terms of research that I've, I've done on this and I've heard people talk about is, uh, is Texas. Uh, Texas went through a terrible, terrible recession in 83, 84, and housing prices completely tanked. Um, and uh, I was speaking to a CEO some months ago in Los Angeles who's in the oil business and originally from Texas, and he described one day where his executive assistant came in and said, you know, did, do I, have I missed something here? 
uh, I pay this much in rent, I can buy a house, have this much, this down payment, if I factor in these utilities and taxes and maintenance and stuff, isn't this a lot cheaper than my rent? And the answer is, yeah, it is. And that arbitrage is coming. Uh, so I think uh, the, the rent versus owning arbitrage is going to be a very good story uh, at some point this year. There are going to be people that will hold back because they're going to still wait for housing prices to bottom, and those prices may dip through that arbitrage price. Um, but, you know, one of the stories we heard every day in the U.S. over the last five years, and I'm sure you heard it a lot in this city, is young people can't afford to buy a home reasonably close to the city so that they don't have a horrific commute. Well, young people will be able to afford to live a little closer to town, which is an upside. Um, Any questions? Bob, um, the, um, you, you spoke about the top being a, a useful plan, and you certainly are right that they had to move quickly, but for those of us north of the border, it does look as if the U.S. government has decided to get the least efficient institutions and give them the most amount of money. So the worst managed the worst, the more top you got. And, and, you know, you mentioned this point that only 25 banks had failed and, you know, we probably need to have a thousand. Isn't all the action the U.S. government taking delaying the inevitable, which is significant bank closure, significant bank consolidation, and the use of the top is, is really slowing that process that we really come to expect from the U.S., that ability to rejuvenate and start again. Well, uh, personally, I'm a big believer in, uh, and you've raised a good point, I'm a big believer in consolidation in financial services in the U.S. There was a time where the U.S. had 20,000 banks, and consolidation has been going on for many, many years. The cost of uh, intermediating between loans and deposits Another thing you taught me, Robin, thank you. Uh, the cost of that is just too high per person in the United States. And uh, I think there should be more consolidation. You should assume that the administration, the Treasury, and the, uh, and the Federal Reserve Board, has, they do think about that issue. And, in fact, one of the issues they've, they've been trying to grapple with is um, they don't want to artificially prop up banks. And... Um, and there's unintended consequences of everything you do, of course, from a policy standpoint. And um, there were a number of banks that said, okay, if I'm not getting the money, that means I'm not going to make it. Uh, and that's created a lot of complexity for a lot of cities and states and for the federal government as well. Um, I think consolidation is going to happen anyways. And actually, the TARP money may actually help accelerate it a little bit because it makes it a bit easier to have a stronger capital base to allow you to, uh, to take the restructuring costs against it. So um, I would expect to see more consolidation, and, uh, and uh, you know, generally it happens because of two reasons. Uh, the first one is your economic model doesn't work anymore as for your company, or secondly, you have a succession issue. And um, uh, I think we'll see more consolidation over the next few years. Um, we're not doing well on this side of the room. Hi, Bob. Michael, how are you? Good. Um, Bob, do you foresee uh, the U.S. mortgage product, residential mortgage product, changing to remove the uh, embedded option to, uh, to refinance, although the market may make that uh, unnecessary anyway, but uh, perhaps making it more similar uh, to a Canadian mortgage product that uh, reprices periodically? Well, uh, great question. Uh, I, um, I did see uh, Secretary Paulson uh, make a comment uh, last week at a conference that he thinks 
the, uh, the future program should be uh, basically a guarantee program, not an on-balance sheet program. And, uh, and I'm very supportive of that, quite frankly. And uh, I think there is a role for Fannie and Freddie, but a different role. Uh, one of the things I did some months ago when I tried to think of longer-term stuff is I did a comparison of the uh, English-speaking world, basically uh, Canada, U.S., U.K., and Australia. And uh, the U.S. Uh, offers for, uh, for homeowners basically the lowest rate, the longest-term product, mortgage interest rate deductibility and inability to go after other personal assets if you have a problem, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yet um, our, um, our home ownership rate in the U.S. is not that materially different than the other three countries, or Canada's in particular. So I'm not sure the cost of it has been uh, made sense. The, the U.K. Uh, eliminated uh, uh, mortgage interest rate deductibility when I was living there in the mid-'80s, and I don't think it hurt the, uh, the housing system. And the, there's no question that it makes uh, the option you speak of to refinance uh, a free refinance option it makes it very difficult for banks and other financial institutions to hold those instruments on balance sheet because you can't manage your risk. Uh, so I suspect the products will evolve. Uh, so will the role of Fannie and Freddie. It's going to be fascinating. The system here works, and you should be proud of it. And um, it's a little more expensive, and you can't get a really long-dated product. But in the end, um, uh, it achieves the policy objectives for the country, in my view. And um, you have a strong country. Other questions? One here? What time for one more only. Sorry. Great. Um, I'm just going to ask you, actually. Sorry, can you see me? Yes. Right. Uh, in the United Kingdom, we've actually just launched a gender mainstreaming analysis of the economic crisis. Um, clearly, there's going to be a gendered aspect to the economic crisis and to the fallout from mortgages being lost, etc. And so that's what the British government has done to find out whether women are going to be disproportionately affected. Is there any sort of analysis like that being happening? Occurring. I'm sorry, analysis like what? I uh, a gendered it. analysis to look at whether it is in fact the case that all people are going to be affected by some of the factors that you have identified in your own talk today, or whether it's in fact the case that women and children are going to be disproportionately affected. Uh, and just one of the factors that the British government has outlined is the fact that women are disproportionately presented yeah. in uh, lower paid jobs. I, you know, I haven't seen it. And the UK economy is such an unusual place. It's uh, from the standpoint that... Um, uh, it's, it's mainly about southeast England, of course, and the, um, the housing market in the U.K. Is, um, tends to be more volatile than the U.S. housing market because it's so concentrated in the southeast. Um, I haven't seen the data uh, in terms of, of ownership by men and women. I do know there were huge excesses, like in the U.S., on some of these products. It's not unusual to have a, uh, a 120 mortgage, you have 120% of the value of the home, so you can buy furniture and stuff like that and get into the house. And um, so historically, if you look at the mortgage curves over time, you can see there's much higher highs and much lower lows. And it's certainly in southeast England. When you pull out London and the metropolitan area around the M25 and the M3, uh, you, you do see that um, uh, they're more uh, stable. But uh, the problem the U.K. has right now is that by far the biggest industry in their biggest city is under extraordinary duress. And that's going to be really tough, which means that housing prices are going to be pretty painful for quite a while. And um, we'll just see how we come through it. Well, thank you very much. I very much appreciate uh, having the opportunity to do this.
Thank you, Mr. Kelly, and thank you all for joining us here today. Obviously, a great deal depends on the success or failure of the administration of incoming President Barack Obama. And it would be difficult to think of an American president of whom so much is anticipated even before he's taken office. Obviously, he'll need all the help he can get. That will include some far-sighted and sage leadership from the U.S. banking sector. And as Robert Kelly has stated, the American retail banking system has been changed and needs to change even further. It may eventually look more like the one we have in Canada. Here in Ontario, we don't need to be reminded of the vital link between our province's economic well-being and that of our southern neighbors. And in four or eight years, Canada and the United States will still be one another's most important trade partners. Prime Minister Trudeau once said that living next to the United States is like sleeping with an elephant. No matter how friendly and even-tempered is the beast, one is affected by every twitch and every grunt. I think Canadians, and indeed most of the world's people, sincerely wish the American elephant the best of health in the future. So much depends on it. And to that end, we wish good luck to the new American president as he takes on his most difficult and historic task. And now on behalf of the Canadian Club and on behalf of the president who had to leave, thank you again, Mr. Kelly, and thank you all for coming here today. This concludes our television programming, which will be broadcast live on Red Rogers TV. This meeting is now adjourned. Thank you. <laughs>